0: Welcome to MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Hannah Myerson. It's estimated that over 800,000 people take their life each year. That's one person every 40 seconds. And for every one suicide, 25 others make a suicide attempt. Understanding suicide and how to prevent it is a universal challenge. Since 2003, World Suicide Prevention Day has taken place every year on 10th of September. It's a day promoting worldwide action to prevent suicide, improve education and smash the stigma. Paul McGregor and Professor Rory O'Connor are two people working tirelessly to do all of the above. In this episode, they'll be joining me to explore the issue further. Paul is a mental health campaigner who lost his dad to suicide when he was 18. Today, his mission is to show men it's okay to talk about their mental health and that speaking is strength. Rory, an MQ-funded researcher, is based at the University of Glasgow, where he leads the Suicidal Behaviour Research Lab. He's been conducting research into suicide and self-harm for over 20 years. So I wanted to start by highlighting the theme of this year's World Suicide Prevention Day, which is working together to prevent suicides. And I want to ask you what World Suicide Prevention Day means to both of you and what you hope it achieves. And Rory, I'll start with you.
1: I think what's great about World Suicide Prevention Day uh, this year in particular is the theme is working together to prevent suicide. And I think that's really important for a number of different reasons. First is that no one of us, me as a suicide researcher, you some who have lived the experience, you as a funder of research in suicide, it doesn't matter who it is, none of us have all the answers and it's, it genuinely is only through working together that we will prevent suicide and indeed One of the great things over the last 20 years that I've been working in the field is that the voices which are contributing to understanding suicide have grown and grown. Now those voices aren't just the same old voices. What's been great to see is we have an active involvement of policymakers, as well as psychiatrists as well as psychologists and social policy people more generally but crucially we now have the voice of lived experience. So people who have been suicidal themselves as well as those bereaved by suicide. And I think one of the key messages that we're trying to do this year uh, under World Suicide Prevention Day is to drive that message forward, to drive that message forward so that we can tackle that 800,000 suicides each year, and that's likely to be an underestimate. So what Suicide Prevention Day means to me is, it's one day, yeah, it's only one day to really shine a light, but crucially, it's not just one day. We have to make sure that suicide prevention is 365 days a year.
0: And to Paul, what does it mean to you?
2: Um, Kind of following on from the last point that you said, for me it's more about awareness and having more people talk about it. You know, even personally when I lost my dad, I didn't tell people he died Mm -hmm. by suicide. It was a very... You didn't want that awkward conversation with someone. You didn't really understand it yourself. So I think, as you say, there's still a huge stigma that surrounds suicide. And that World Prevention Day almost gives people a chance to talk about it I saw a statistic recently about our mental health awareness week how the engagement, the amount of people talking about it grew nine times from last year Mm -hmm. so it's almost now these you know whether it's a day they create awareness but as you've kind of said it's all about following that on you know one day isn't enough
0: yeah definitely I think I wanted to move on then you know you obviously mentioned that you lost your dad. Could you just explain a bit more about that and tell us what happened around that time?
2: Yeah, it was a uh, something I couldn't talk about for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, my dad I always say he had everything on paper. He had a full-time job, her two sons, you know, wife, family, friends. He was an athlete. He ran. He was a full-time engineer, read a lot of self-help books, you know, meditated. It was very holistic. And then one day I saw him and... I always say I call it a breakdown but his eyes were very different he was acting very different in behavior Um, you know long story of it is he seeked help got prescribed antidepressants and within a few days attempted um, did you know survive that accident when physically maybe he shouldn't have Mm. and came out denied that it happened denied that it was suicide and came out physically never had a mental assessment follow-up and then We thought dad's home, dad's okay. It must've just been something out of the blue. And then he sectioned himself, um, spent a time in the mental health unit, came out and seemed to be a bit better, but still very different in behavior. And yeah, it was a six month period from that breakdown to then when he took his, his own life in 2009 and yeah dealing with it was hard because I was I thought my dad had chose to do that Mm -hmm. and I found it very hard to deal with it and grieve and talk about it and I also that question of why as you said that was the one thing that kept running through my mind why 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 and that ate away at me for so long Mm -hmm. until I started to get some some answers yeah
0: I know that in your blog you speak about how in the months or years perhaps after your dad died you would lie about The circumstances in which Mm. that happened, and I just wondered, you know, the reasons behind why you did that.
2: Yeah, you know, one is that judgment. So Mm. I was worried that people would judge me, people would judge my family and my dad, you know, because maybe it was something to do with us. So I would lie because of that fear of judgment, but also I didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I I didn't deal with it. I wasn't talking about it. So I don't want to talk to know a random person about it either so there's been cases when um sort of someone said oh your mum and dad and I would say oh my my dad's died how did he die cancer which is normally the first thing they Mm -hmm. say and I would just say oh road accident He he died in a road accident and then shut off when now I am more open with it and I see a massive difference now that when I say you know my dad died by suicide it opens up a conversation that they might have someone that they've you know they've dealt with that grief as well and or they've maybe got to a place where they've been suicidal and it opens up a brand new conversation rather than being very closed off
1: i think to can't you come in there i mean i'm really sorry to hear about your dad paul um, but i suppose it highlights a number of important things and first is um the sad reality is if somebody attempts suicide once the light, if they are going to attempt suicide again, it mm. usually is in the, in, the, in the small number of months following the first attempt. Mm. So most repeat suicide attempts will happen within the first six months, and even more recently in the first three months, but in your case, obviously your dad's um, death and happens within six months. And what it highlights is that it's absolutely crucial that we do more to ensure that we've got aftercare for people who have attempted suicide. Mm. Um, there's, there's good practice going on in some places, but we need to ensure that, that, that really that crucial moment of crisis that we follow up and support people. So the, lo- the work that we do is we try and understand the psychology, the complex set of factors that lead to suicide. And usually um, we, we think I've developed a model of suicide and what's at the heart of that model is that suicide is usually driven by a sense of entrapment. You're just trapped and it's, you're talking about your dad's, from the outside, looked as if he had everything. And sadly, that's, that is a, too common an experience. And indeed, we do work on what's called social perfectionism. Mm. And social perfectionism is what you think others expect of you. And if you're high in social perfectionism, you're much more likely to feel you're letting family members down, you're letting yourself down, you're letting other people in your life down. And it's from the outside looking in, it looks fine, but we'll never, it's very difficult inside to understand the pain, the unbearable pain that that person's feeling. And in terms of that, you mentioned also this idea of a decision. Um, or made a choice and yes in in one sense your dad did decide to kill himself but that usually nine times out of ten it is it's not that the person wanted to kill himself but they wanted the pain to Mm. end so in a real sense it's not a choice it's just a person is overwhelmed by pain often they'll feel a burden on others Mm. and they feel that so this sense that we often talk about cognitive constriction the sense of tunnel vision That the suicidal person can't see alternatives and sees the only way they can end the pain, sadly for 800,000 people each year across the globe, is suicide.
2: Yeah, I think what helped me, as you said, is forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So forgiving him and forgiving myself because Mm -hmm. there's so much guilt there. And until I reached that point of forgiveness, I found it very hard to grieve. And as soon as I, like you say, understood Mm -hmm. suicide more, and that was only from, again, there's no one telling you I had to... Answer a lot of questions. As soon as I forgave him and understood suicide more and also forgave myself, that's when I could start to move on. Yeah.
0: What was the journey that you took to get to that point from lying and just shutting down that conversation to finally being able to open up and then to open up to the extent that you do now, where you will actively yeah. <laughs> open up to people? Talk to anyone. And <laughs> s- talk to anyone and, and to seek audiences to kind of spread the message that you're trying to share because. You know that's a very brave thing for anyone to do and to come so far down that line yeah i wonder what transformation took place
2: um i think my biggest fear was and still is that i'd end up like my dad mm-hmm. and after that happened i was always compared to my dad you're sporty like your dad you look like your dad mm-hmm. so then my first initial reaction is i'm gonna end up like my dad mm-hmm. and i um struggled to grieve and I went to the doctors one day. He said, I'm very fatigued, very tired. He said, you're depressed. And I said, no, I'm not. And I run away from the diagnosis of depression because mm. I didn't want to end up like my dad. I thought I'm being mm. boxed in here again. And um, I got to points when I think the real deep of it was I tried to, I got to a place, I wanted to try and get to the mindset that my dad was in to make that decision. So I would never say I was suicidal, but there was times when I felt like I wanted to be there to understand it more. But what helped me was I went and saw a counselor on the GP, it didn't work. I went and saw a psychotherapist, didn't work. And then I got um, told, I had a a back problem and um, my now wife, she said, you should go see this lady um, she's weird and she explained her <laughs> as being really weird and for some reason like at it's 21 yeah. I was drawn to that I was like okay I need to go see this weird lady and anyway her name was Anne, and she, was, uh, she did her weekend holistic therapy course that was it I went there purely for the massage and I think it worked because I didn't go in there to get therapy I went in there for a massage but there was something that kept me going and I think it was the second or third session I just opened up to her and as soon as I said um, you know my dad died from suicide I don't know how to deal with it I just then started to learn more about myself. Yeah. And again, she, what, what she was really good at, which I realized is she didn't focus on my dad. She focused on me. Mm-hmm. So like trying to get me to be more self-aware and understand it more, then helped me understand my dad a little bit more. And then, yeah, like I say, that was sort of six, seven years ago. So now it's kind of just that journey of self-awareness and discovering more, more about me and um, has then helped me become more open and talk
1: but i think what that highlights is um so again linking it back to sort of um working together to prevent suicide this idea that we all have a role to play in suicide prevention so your example of that lady it's not um, in a way it's the the weird and is it in a way it what well, it's what the way it, what struck me is when you described it was it provided a safe place for mm. you uh, uh, to talk and, and I think that's the message is that, and that could be any one of us that, so when we're thinking about our friends who, who are vulnerable or our family members we all could provide that safe place and I think that's really really crucial is that somebody has a safe place in which they feel that if I unload on that person that they're not going to think any worse of me and that they maybe give me this opportunity just to speak and I really like that idea of giving you this space not just to focus on your dad but to focus on you mm.
2: you know opening up to her helped but then she would give me a book and I would read and discover more and then I started to exercise more, focus on nutrition and and look after myself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I started to feel better about myself because before Anne, I played victim mindset where this has happened to me, I want to see my dad, I'm never gonna see my dad again. Mm -hmm. And then after being able to open up, it was very much now trying to move forward and turn it maybe not into a positive but like I can't change that, yeah. move forward from it, and that helped me massively.
0: Can you tell me about the first time that you spoke to a big audience about it and how you're feeling?
2: Mm, so I'd done, I'd, I'd done some public speaking before for the, I do um, digital marketing, and social media, so I'd, I'd done that, so I hated public speaking, but now I'd done a few, so I'd got over the fear of public speaking, and then I got invited to an event in Atlanta um, by some YouTubers I know, and I said to them, I want to talk about mal-depression because it was a room of 200 men. And I practiced it in the, n- the night before in my hotel room. And I told about them about my dad's suicide and how I dealt with it. And I cried, like in my room, just mm-hmm. tears flooded. And I thought to myself, I want to show a bit of emotion, but I cannot cry like that because <laughs> I will be carried <laughs> off the stage and I will be an embarrassment. Um, but then when I delivered the talk, I didn't cry at all because I think I let all those emotions out. Mm-hmm. And I was the last speaker on the second day I don't know why they placed me there, but it was good because I'd spoken to guys before. I didn't tell them what I was gonna talk about. As soon as I stood up, spoke about suicide, depression, men in particular, Um, there was guys crying and they felt I was talking to them. Um, People then opened up. And as you said, that was then the the stage where I actually realized that if I talk, hopefully it's gonna get other people to, Mm. to open up back. And then yeah, I just continued to sort of do it from there.
0: For yourself as well, did you find it cathartic? Was it a healing process for yeah. you to go through too?
2: I always say it's like free therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to pay Anne now. I will just go and tell it to 200 people. Oh, I hope that Anne's still in your life. <laughs> she is. I still good. see her, not as often, but I still see her every now and then. But yeah, even with the videos, you know, sometimes if I create a video, it's almost I don't. There must be some reason why, but it's good therapy for me because it's now I'm opening up, putting it out there, getting feedback. And that helps as well.
0: Yeah, I, um, I guess also YouTube is a very vulnerable platform to, mm. to put yourself out there and and getting feedback from people all over the world who can relate to that story is yeah. it's very special. And
2: my biggest challenge was dealing with comments at the beginning. So there are going to be people commenting on mm-hmm. it saying, the one one person that doesn't doesn't bother me now, but at the time it did. They someone said, oh, you're doing this, or you're trying to become famous off your dad's suicide, and that really goes. Oh, but the you know, comments like that don't affect me anymore because. After the one comment, you'll get a hundred positive comments, and it's about focusing on that because, as you say, a lot of people don't talk about it because of that reason. Like they feel like if I talk about this, I'm looking for sympathy, or Mm -hmm. so.
1: Yeah, because this reminds me of um, we did a documentary with Professor Green. Yeah, as you was talking, I was like, (laughs) I recognise this guy actually,
2: (laughs) but you were the guy in the Professor Green documentary. The the guy in the Professor Green documentary.
1: Yeah, (laughs) but, but Professor Green talks about. Stephen talks about. And he wrote, he's sung about it as yeah, well. Obviously, when he started talking about his dad's suicide, is that some people are saying, "Oh, same idea of you." I mean, you're doing this on the back of your dad's suicide. That's not a very nice type thing. But it's been great because I think working with with Stephen on that has been remarkable. The audience we were able to mm. get to in terms of the people who are most vulnerable, young men, and actually because he was able to reach out to that group of people. So I think I, I'm just delighted to see you doing this. And I, and when you think about yeah, those one or two negative comments they're nothing compared to the positive comments of hopefully making a difference to people's lives. And you never know, saving people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Moving on to you. Rory, you're one of the UK's leading scientists who's researching ways to tackle the issue that Paul has been affected by. Uh, First and foremost, what got you into the field?
1: So I've been doing this work for, I think, I got into this field in 1994, so quite a while, obviously 20 odd years. You'll
0: be happy to hear I was just one. Then. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs>
1: I feel old enough as it is with all my grey hair. Um, actually, I got into it, in a way, fortuitously and um, serendipitously. Uh, I was, as an undergraduate student, I did work on hopelessness and helplessness, which are related, but not directly study on suicide. And then just by chance, um, I put in for a PhD looking at that and that scholarship never came off for to do that piece of work. But that summer, the person who turned out to be my supervisor, a guy called Professor Noel Sheehy, he said to me, I got this email saying, oh, there might be this possibility of doing a PhD on suicide. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, I just jumped at the chance. And that scholarship in itself didn't come off, but I, I was so then enthused and intrigued and passionate about suicide research that I continued to do that as a PhD and then I got another scholarship. So in that sense, it was um, serendipitous. and, And at that stage, I hadn't been directly affected by suicide. But the sad reality is in the years since that, a very close friend of mine has taken her own life. And indeed, the man who, without whom I would never have done suicide research, the person who sent me that email and got me that scholarship, he sadly lost his struggle. And so although I've always been incredibly passionate about suicide research and prevention, it's just so much more personal now. And, and really it really highlights um, the scale of the challenge we have in terms of suicide prevention, how difficult it is to prevent an individual suicide. And it's also the sense, I mean, I, when well, I first, um, 10 years ago, when I lost my close friend to suicide, I mean, I really, I mean, I was devastated, I remain really, I think about her almost every day but I had a question whether I would continue doing this work because I just felt I felt like a failure. Um, but obviously, I, I continue to do the work. I mean, it's just so. It's my sort of passion, my life. And, um, and I'm pleased that, that I made the decision to continue in this field. And one of the things my mother has said since the day and hour I got involved in this field was always look after yourself. And, and I suppose maybe that's something I haven't done as well as I could have done over the years. But it's something I'm very, very conscious of now, looking after my own mental health
0: just I want to go back to the what you just spoke about and the fact that you used the word failure which I thought was really interesting and I wondered why you might feel that way well because to my
1: mind I was this person who was uh, oh this so-called expert in suicide research and suicide prevention so how could it happen to me that sort of thing how could I not have prevented this person's death Somebody really really close to me Somebody really important in my life Somebody I had worked with and a really close friend and um, and then, obviously, when when my my mentor took his own life as well, um, I just thought I would let them down, and um, and I obviously I know that I I in so on one level I, I failures the wrong word, but it and it's what I felt and some and some days what I continue to feel and and guilt um, that could I should I have done more? Could I have been a better friend? S- uh, could have supported them better in a different way? And and obviously those those what ifs are things that I mean I have to live with and I know I know because I've worked in the field so often I've told countless people over the years that obviously it's not what you you couldn't have done anything in the sense that the factors that lead to suicide are so complicated and not only are you trying to identify the person who's at risk but you're trying to identify the day and this guy called Ed Schneidman who's a sort of founding father of suicidology suicide research and prevention in the United States he often talks about or used to talk about death day you're trying to predict death day and that's so true and um, if you look in a statistical sense in the UK for every hundred thousand people in a population about ten or eleven people every hundred thousand are trying to kill themselves or or, sorry who will kill themselves and so it's like the sort of needle in a haystack of those hundred thousand people you're trying to identify the ten who will kill themselves and that just illustrates how difficult it is as a task.
0: So what do we know so far about the reasons or circumstances that might make someone attempt to take their own life?
1: There's no one reason why people kill themselves, obviously, and it's uh, complicated and multifactorial. But certainly in Western countries, we know that most people who die by suicide, it happens in the context of mental health problems or mental illness, most commonly a mood disorder like depression. But what I often say is, yes, we know that mood disorders are really, really important. But again, the overwhelming majority of people with mood disorders and mental health problems don't kill themselves. So we know that some statistics would suggest that you're 10 times more likely to kill yourself if you're living in the most disadvantaged areas compared to those living in the most affluent areas. So suicide and its prevention is a public health problem, it's a social inequity, it's a disgrace. But in terms of the way we've tried and conceptualised this model of suicide, the IMV model integrated motivational volitional model and it tries to understand the psychological processes. Because For me suicide is ultimately um, a psychological phenomenon because an individual makes a decision to kill themselves. Now that's not that they've made a choice it's not that at all, it's just they can't see any alternative and they want the pain to end. So a sense of entrapment, this overwhelming entrapment. So the work we try to do is understand well actually what are the factors that increase the likelihood that you'll feel trapped. And I suppose what we need to be doing more of is how do we translate that sort of theoretical knowledge so that my IMV model into interventions to help people. And so in part, the safety planning intervention we're doing with um, MQ, that's looking at one aspect of my model. And one one of the particular aspects of my model, which I think is important in our understanding is, is we're trying to understand what is it that, that differentiates somebody who thinks about suicide and doesn't go any further from somebody who makes that transition from thinking to attempting suicide. So I often talk about volitional moderators, volitional factors. And these volitional factors Sorry,
0: could you just explain what a volitional factor is?
1: What a volitional factor is, is any factor which facilitates a transition from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide. And with Olivia Kirtley at Leuven University, I've just published an updated version of uh, of the model. And what the model does is provides what we describe as eight pillars of behavioural inaction. So what that means is eight volitional factors, which we think facilitate this transition from thinking to attempting suicide. And there are things like having the access to the means of suicide increases the likelihood you'll act on your thoughts. Impulsivity, the more impulsive you are, the more likely to act on your thoughts of suicide and make a suicide attempt or die by suicide. We talk about exposure to suicide, that increases the risk that suicide is a thing you may consider as a possibility for you. And, and it increases your, your risk
0: can i just touch on that point of suddenly suicide kind of coming into someone's consciousness if they know someone who has taken their own life what are the psychological processes behind that
1: so one could be accessibility um so our, what we call cognitive accessibility and um and this is really this idea that if and we've got some qualitative data not for, from suicide but from adolescents of self-harm we've asked them so why have you self-harmed um, and th- there's a range of different reasons given but I remember a really great quote from a, a young person who said well actually my mum she, she self-harmed and attempted suicide so if she can why can't I and so there was a legitimization for it in, in their case and then uh, two others which are particularly important is we, discu- that we talk about fearlessness about death and it's drawing on Thomas Joyner's work in the United States is that people who attempt suicide or die by suicide we think of higher fearlessness or sorry they're less fearful about dying and we think this is a a fluid thing which changes so your fearlessness about death is sort of counter to the life preservation instinct that in the sense that the person who attempts suicide or dies by suicide has to overcome to engage in the act. So we need to understand what are the factors that lead to these changes in fearlessness about death and then related to that is physical pain sensitivity and we've done a lot of work with this in the last couple of years and again, this this idea that people who attempt suicide or die by suicide have a higher physical pain tolerance or threshold. So, so that, in terms of advances we've made so in terms of my model, that's focusing in on those volitional phase factors is crucial. And I, and I think we should be focusing more interventions which are targeting, yes, the factors that lead to the emergence of suicidal thoughts and entrapment and defeat and humiliation and shame, all these factors we know are in the mix in, in the sort of suicidal mind but crucially we need to then develop interventions which basically stop the person acting or reduces the likelihood they'll make that transition they'll cross a precipice from thinking to attempting suicide.
0: So I wanted to move on um, to talk a bit about statistics and stigma which we've already touched on and I was really shocked to read some of the statistics that World Suicide Prevention Day released and there's something about 153 people being bereaved by every individual suicide which is something like over 108 million people each year who are bereaved by suicides. and I think as we talk more about mental health and also about suicide there are so many statistics that come out that it's almost mm. overwhelming and I just I wondered if there was something that you've heard over the years that sticks with you
2: My one was the first statistic of suicide being the biggest killer of men under the age of 50 or 45. And I heard that about two years ago, and I'd lost my dad to that, and I didn't know that statistic. Um, Then hearing that suicide is the biggest killer of young people, and now as I'm a a dad, that scares me. Um, But the statistic that you've just said is the one that scares me even more, because of, as you said, you're at more risk of suicide if you've been bereaved by suicide. So if a suicide's affecting that many people, that obviously plays a huge part in people taking
1: their own lives as well. Um, yeah, but I suppose it's important. I agree. But it, so, yeah, there's this because it used to be this figure of um, so 20 years ago, if you asked how many people were affected by suicide, the figure was six. And it was based on, I don't know, somebody's guesswork from in the United States. And then Julie Carell, who's the person who's um, the author of this most updated one, saying it's in the hundreds who are affected. So yes, it it, it recognises that there's lots of people affected. And we know that yes, bereavement by suicide is a risk factor, but the overwhelming majority of people who are bereaved will never kill themselves or Mm. think of killing themselves. So so yes, I think it's great to see it highlighted, uh, but we have to be careful that it doesn't become overplayed in the sense that that all these people aren't going to kill themselves. And I think that's uh, an important message. But uh the statistics pose I mean the one I was getting same as you, Paul, is and it's the one I've known for many years, is being the biggest the biggest killer of men under fifty. So when I started doing this work in the nineteen nineties, I was a, a a young man with long dark hair and uh and the biggest risk group then was men in their in their twenties. So I've always been in that risk group. Yeah. And what's been really interesting and really complicated to understand is what we what we describe as a cohort effect so that so male suicide young men were most likely to kill themselves in the 90s and as we've moved through then to now to 2018 it's middle-aged men who are most likely to kill themselves so there's something really scary about what's going on what went on with my cohort of people growing up in that stage and 20 years ago and we're carrying our risk with us the one part of that might be that we we experienced a recession and lots of social problems more generally in the country my fear is that now we've just come through another recession so the question is will we see the suicide rates start to go up in young men again and that's Mm. something we need to be really really vigilant about yes we have to look at middle-aged men of course because they're high risk but we have to be really really conscious that and actually we also know the suicide rate seems to be going up in in women Mm. Um, and so we have to be also vigilant yes this is we're talking about male suicide today but female suicide is also important and arguably hasn't had the same attention in yeah, recent years. Yeah, I agree. Even though we know, obviously, three times uh, more men kill themselves than women, but we need to be really, really conscious that we're not neglecting a key population.
0: Right. I think, first of all, I was hoping you'd pick that statistic <laughs> <laughs> because I think it leads us on to something that we touched on before, which is this idea of the stigma that surrounds men and being vulnerable and talking about their emotions. Yeah. And I wanted to hear from both of you just through your life experience, why do you think that is? Why why does that stigma still exist so strongly?
2: Personally, I think it's the thought that opening up, talking about how you feel makes you less of a man. So, you know, saying, actually, you know, I'm really struggling, I'm, I feel like I'm, I can't go to work in the mornings, to say that to another man takes a lot. And they also might have a fear that that, you know, a judgment might come back. And there's another statistic that I heard the other day about the construction industry. If you're a man working in construction, is it eight times Mm -hmm. more likely to to take your own life? And that for me highlights the society issue around men. That very male-dominant environment, if the suicides are very high in in that environment, Mm -hmm. that for me shows you how much men not being able to talk within that group is is affecting them.
1: But actually just on that, there's um, brilliant work going on in Australia mates in construction and they're doing really innovative work in which these the companies are working really with the men they're not talking about suicide prevention directly but and trying to get men to support each other and connecting with each other and the whole idea of being alongside men because one of the challenges we have is we still don't know really well okay so i mentioned this earlier about psychological therapies being available but actually as a man maybe I, i don't want to go to see a psychotherapist or a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist but it might be helpful and supportive if we can develop programs, which are maybe at football clubs and rugby clubs, and those things are developing, mm. um, which are focused on, me- on mental health. But you don't talk about, you. Talk, there's a whole set of language and ways in which you can do that so that you're supporting men alongside each other and that you go to where men are rather than necessarily expect men to come to yeah. you. And in, in one of the questions about middle-aged suicide is, so one of the arguments is that we, as a middle-aged man, I'm part of the buffer generation. Whereas when I look ahead to my father, he probably didn't talk so much about his mental health versus emotions and sort of stiff upper lip type idea. And then when I look behind to my kids, they are actually much more able to talk about their mental health problems and mental health issues potentially. Whereas us in the middle, we don't, we don't know which way to turn and we're, yeah. we sort of feel there's been such huge change in social roles in the last 20 years and arguably the male social role has become less well-defined yeah. and, and rightly, the female role has become better defined. Um, and so that notion of being a sort of breadwinner, that's all changed. And, and having a job for life, all these things which we took for granted, that's no longer the case. So I think, I'm hoping that schools and, and people like you setting the sort of standard and other young people coming up in their 14s, 15s are maybe now doing more of this, let's talk about emotions, let's talk about health.
2: I think just quickly, as you were saying about that defined goal of what makes a man, I think that was a big issue with my dad because I've been writing about it recently. My granddad's 93, still alive, went through war, saw Mm. his friends, you know, get killed in front of him. My dad was an only child. So my dad died a month later. My nan died. So my dad, my granddad lost his only son and a wife within a month, never cried throughout the whole funeral. And I always say that that's my granddad's coping mechanism. That's how my granddad was brought up. Mm -hmm. So with my dad, he learnt that he inherited that from my granddad, but he was also brought up by my nan, who was quite sensitive. So then my dad, as me to me and my brother, he was very sensitive. We'd kiss him good night, mm-hmm. night dad, love you, da da da. But if I had a bad game of football, I'd know about it. He'd tell me. <laughs> he'd, I, if, if granddad, you know, granddad would say this to me and. I think that's a big issue with my dad is he didn't know what you
0: pulled pulled from each direction.
2: Am I, should I be a man like this? Should I be a man like this?
0: Uh, Talking of people being more open, we, for the first time, reached out to some of our supporters to ask if they had any questions for the two of you. Uh, And they were very varied. And first of all, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone. You know, I think it's incredibly courageous to open up on a social media platform and we really appreciate all of your questions. Uh, and the first one I I was asked was if either of you could impart any methods that you might have learned to try and engage with someone positively who might be having suicidal thoughts or is in that place.
2: I think for me, it's trying I, I, again, this is I need I feel like I need more training on this because a lot of people now come to me mm. saying that they're in that place. And sometimes I don't know what to say, but I feel like just giving them some hope, some meaning and trying to. As you say, I always feel like my dad. His whole perspective of life closed in on him, and he mm. felt like he didn't have anything left, even though he did. So, trying to give them that one glimmer of hope to make them go another day, another day. Um, but you probably the the better one. Well, no, no
1: I I would agree with that. I suppose two things. There's one would be to do with um, advice for people who are asking somebody whether they're suicidal, and and there's one, and then what how you would respond. Yeah. There's, there's two different things, I think. One of the biggest barriers to asking somebody whether they're suicidal or not is the fear. What happens if the answer comes back is yes. So there's a lot of fears and also the fear that if you if you ask somebody or say you might say the wrong wrong thing. I suppose my my view would be and sort of some of the research out there would suggest as long as you're compassionate, as long as you're sensitive and, um, and not judgmental, I think those are sort of the key drivers. And, and there are, if you go to Samardin's website, there's a there are resources actually to help you ask those questions in a more a more um, sort of structured type of way but it's, a, it's along those broad principles showing compassion, humanity and non-judgment uh, yeah. because remember it takes a lot for somebody to say if you ask them are you suicidal to say yes that's that's a big thing and and then the second one is obviously what messages and I agree entirely we, this no- notion of hope. Um, Because the suicidal person who's actively suicidal is so constricted, they can't this tunnel vision. They can't see a way beyond. We've done work on the way people think about the future who are suicidal, and it's different. They don't see these positive things, and they think things will never ever change. Mm -hmm. And things like might be to get the person to think about well, actually. Can you do anything to distract you, um, or are the things people you can contact, or just having this glimmer of hope something to hold on to in that acute moment of crisis? But then the other message, and the last thing I'll say on this, would be, is if you're worried, always, always get professional help. Get them to contact their GP. Um, if the worst comes to worst, nine nine nine. If you're really, if somebody's imminently at risk of suicide, but in general, just get really help support them in getting other support and other help. Yeah.
0: A few of our supporters also came forward and in a similar situation to you, Paul, they had lost parents to suicide and they spoke about feeling this immense sense of guilt that's kind of travelled with them throughout their lifetime and they're really struggling to deal with that. And, you know, obviously as you who's, some, who's gone through it yourself, is there any advice you could impart to them to help make their day-to-day life a bit easier and relieve that sense of guilt?
2: What helped me was... Focusing on on being present. So this is something that Anne taught me: is none of that can change. And what's happened to me with my dad, I can't change that. But what I can do is try to stay present and r- look at what's happening right now and try to move forward from that. And yeah, there was so much guilt that I had. You know, I saw my dad the night before and, def- and knew that he wasn't right. My first thought was take him back to the mental health unit because he'd only just been ta- he'd only just been let out but I was so tired, drained. I just thought, I I don't know what to do anymore. You know, he'll sleep Mm -hmm. and then tomorrow might be another day and then I never saw him again. And there's a a huge amount of guilt that I carried for a long time. But then it just, it weighs you down personally. And you know, my dad's story is my dad's story and my story is is different. And I I couldn't let that, that guilt hold me down for any longer. So I had to try and look at it in a different perspective and understand suicide more, understand what happened and start thinking about right how can I move forward from this
1: so I could just come in there that what resonates there with this idea of being in the present so you think of mindfulness as mm. um, obviously the, uh, just, just the therapy and part of that is getting you to live in the present because you're always worried about yeah. so we spend so much of our time ruminating about the past or worrying about the future and if you stay in the present that's what you're in control of and yeah. I mean I think that's a really good point
2: and they say as well when you ruminate on the past you can feel depressed When you focus too far ahead in the future, you can feel anxiety. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. The balance. Yeah, Yeah, it is. So today, Paul, what keeps you positive? What things do you focus on if you feel that sadness?
2: Yeah, and again, I would lie if I didn't say I have down days. Everyone does. Um, But I always say now, um, someone explained this to me. I feel like I've got a toolbox that I can reach into. Mm -hmm. So when I feel myself getting lower, I think to myself, okay, am I eating? well am I exercising am I spending time with family Um, and all of those things help so then when I um, go back to those I start to feel better Um, and also just the overall goal that I've now got of of getting more people talking and a lot of that's driven from my me now becoming like a dad and I never want them to grow up without the support that a lot of people are suffering to get now Um, so just the whole meaning around life keeps me going and then just having those habits that I now know make me feel better, keep yeah. me going as well.
0: I think that the research that you're doing, it sounds very daunting and it sounds like progress can sometimes take a long time to mm-hmm. happen. And, and obviously with the state of mental health services uh, being quite sparse or not being able to adequately accommodate the mm-hmm. need. I wondered if there was anything positive any positive changes that you've seen in the sector since you began your research and maybe a particular moment that you've seen that's made you proud?
1: I'd say there's been a sea change in the last ten years in terms of prioritization of mental health in general not specifically on services necessarily but on having the conversation about mental health so we know you obviously have in all parts of the UK we have ministers you're dedicated um, to obviously mental health um, and, and that's just remarkable and fantastic and it means that it is a priority. So I think I would say that's been a big change and indeed if we look at how the broader media has engaged with suicide research and suicide prevention, 20 years ago we wouldn't have had documentaries about suicide in the way we have now, we wouldn't have high profile campaigners and the other thing which has been really positive is in the UK now, well Northern Ireland has a suicide prevention strategy um, which has yet to be published but it's waiting to be published but every other part of the UK has an has an up-to-date suicide prevention strategy so I think that's really important because politically that's what's driving action now what I would like to see though both in terms of services and research is that ensure that the governments and not just the government but the government in this case provide the resources to ensure that we do more research to better to have the answers about what works to prevent suicide, but crucially, we have, we have proper provision of services and probably funded services, um, not just in adults, but across the lifespan. So child and adolescent mental health services is under huge strain, and that pathway from adolescent child to adolescent to adult, that, that we have this basically care pathway for the most vulnerable in our society.
0: You've obviously both positioned yourself at the center of changing attitudes to suicide, and, As we conclude the podcast, what advice would you give from your own experiences on World Suicide Prevention Day? What's one thing that you would want one of our listeners to take away?
2: Share, just share a story, share, maybe just talk openly about something that you've been affected by. Um, Because even from me, when I lost my dad to suicide, I remembered of a friend, I say a friend, he was just someone I knew at school. And he lost his dad to suicide about a year before. And you hear it, and you feel sad for them, but then your life moves on. Now, when my dad died from suicide, the first person I thought to contact was this mm. random boy from school, because he had a similar experience. So I feel if anyone can share and just talk openly about it, it might give people an opportunity to to share as well.
1: So, I'll go for two. Okay, if that's okay. Have to. So the first one would be. Um, if you're worried about somebody, if you're concerned about somebody's mental health, concerned they may maybe suicidal, please always ask them. Asking somebody whether they're suicidal does not plant the idea in their head, it could be the first step to that person getting help and support and potentially saving their life. So that would be the first thing. And the second thing is we all have a role in suicide prevention. So the theme this year is working together to prevent suicide. So it doesn't matter if you're a loved one, A clinician, a researcher, a policymaker, or somebody who's lost somebody to suicide. We all have one bit of the puzzle, um, which we've put it together all by working together. Then we can tackle the scourge in society of 800,000 people losing their lives to suicide.
0: Thank you. And thank you both so much for joining me today. I think that both of you have spoken really bravely and inspiringly and hopefully given people who are listening really tangible things that they can do if they're in a position where they're worried about someone uh, i want to say another huge thank you to mq's charity partner kemp little who are kindly hosting us today and finally thank you all for listening and to all of you who submitted questions if you've been affected by the content of this podcast or are having thoughts about taking your own life please call the samaritans on 116 123 They're available to talk 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It might be very hard for you to see at this time, but you're not alone and you're not beyond help.